invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We'll be in the first seven verses uh, this morning, and then I'll pray and begin. If you don't have your Bibles uh, with you, we would encourage you to uh, bring your Bibles. We're going to be opening it up every single week, and so it would do you well to track along with us as we work through the book of Acts together. Uh, If you don't have a Bible or uh, don't have your Bible with you today, you're more than welcome to use one of the Bibles that we've provided in front of you. The passage can be found on page 859. Once again, as a reminder, as you're turning there, uh, that uh, if we have not had the chance to meet yet, I would love to meet you. And uh, I'm usually hanging up, uh, hanging out up front here after service, uh, and I, I would love to, to get to know you a little bit, and uh, you get to know me as, as well. Um, let's turn to God's Word together. It's uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. It says this. Now in these days, when the apostles were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. And Lord, we are dependent on your spirit now as we come to your word, and we would ask that your spirit would translate these words to us so that we would know who you are, who you say you are in your word. I pray, Father, that we would have a hunger for your word and a hunger for the great treasures and the great wealth that's found in knowing your character. Lord, too many times I substitute uh, cheap things, um, good things, but cheap substitutes in comparison to the glory of who you are. And so in this moment, Father, give us a hunger. Draw us into you by your spirit. I would ask, Father, that your spirit might move in this place and um, be a catalyst for transformation. And in your holy name I pray, amen. Christianity, uh, statistically speaking, is the most diverse movement in all human history. This is what J.D. Greer, a pastor out of Durham, North Carolina, writes in his book, Gaining by Losing, that uh, the pastoral staff here has been working through. He backs up that claim by explaining that in Christianity, there is no dominant culture. And what he means by that is if you were to set out a world map and chart where all the different believers in Jesus are on this map, Greer claims that what you would find is quite bizarre because 20% approximately of believers live in Asia and 20% of believers live in Africa, and 20% live in Europe, and 20% live in North America, and 20% live in South America. 
It's, it's bizarre and unique because any other major religion in the world has at least 80% of its followers concentrated on one continent, in one location. And I love this because it gives us a flavor of the heart of God. This statistic shows us God's will and his plan unfolding among the nations. And you'll notice that the nature of this plan started not actually at Jesus, but way back to Abraham. When God promised, he made a covenant with Abraham saying, your family line will be a blessing to all nations. And then when, when Jesus came, the, the plan was further executed. And you'll notice that this, this mission that Jesus himself commissioned all of his followers to go and do is not just about the quantity of making believers, the quantity of people we reach out to, but there's also this element of the diversity of the people that we reach out to. When Jesus sat with his disciples right before he ascended into heaven, he he didn't say, therefore go and make disciples of as many people as you possibly can. No, he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. You notice that he um, doesn't stop short at just make as many disciples as possible. Instead, he instructs them to go to all nations. And we've been tracking this movement in Acts. It it seems that Jesus wasn't content enough uh, to just have as many believers as possible, which is something we should care about, but he actually takes it a step further. He says, I don't want you to neglect any people group in the process. Diversity is a driver of Jesus's mission. And the great beauty that we will find kingdom come is that heaven will be the most diverse environment that we have ever experienced. John, an apostle, writes about it in Revelation. While John was a prisoner in exile, God gave him a revelation. He pulled back the curtain, if you will, to give John just a taste, just a small glimpse of what heaven is going to look like. And in Revelation 7, John writes that he saw a great multitude, a bunch of people that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne of God. I'll be very transparent with you. I grew up in a very white suburb. I don't recall ever having any close friends from another race, maybe one or two at best. And so for the longest time growing up, while I never looked down on other races, I actually didn't see what the big deal was with diversity. I didn't see why diversity was so important. But then as the years went on, and as I explored scripture, as I became a student of God's word, I saw God's heart for diversity. I I saw in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, how God deeply cares for the foreigner. 
and how the Israelites were called to care for the outsider, the ones from another nation. I saw how in Acts chapter one, the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit and the very first act that the Holy Spirit does is enable, he enables the apostles to preach the gospel in other languages. Diversity is at the very heart of the gospel. I mentioned this a few weeks back, but I'd like to revisit it in that as we are reconciled to God through Jesus' work on the cross, we are, we are reconciled to him vertically, but we are also, as a byproduct of that, reconciled to each other horizontally. As we are drawn to God, we are drawn to each other. Is to give you a little illustration, imagine yourself as a string. We're all a string, and at the end of the string, there's a little marble tied to the end of the string. As God draws us to him, as he lifts those strings up, naturally the marbles will come together, right? Because, because our embrace of each other is a byproduct of God's embrace of us. This is what it's, it's all about, breaking barriers, And it started with Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, he broke the ultimate barrier of us and God, the barrier that was between us and God. He he broke the barrier when you go to Philippians 2 and you read about Jesus stepping out of heaven into earth. He gave up all the glory that goes along with being divine, with being God. And he stepped into the earth to become a servant a servant leader. Jesus broke that barrier, the most massive chasm of a barrier possible. And in doing so, in the process, he also broke the barrier between us and everybody else. And so as I grew and matured, I I became absolutely convicted of this and now feel the need, the, the, a longing in my heart to embrace the diversity that is just plastered throughout all of scripture. And there will be effectiveness to this. J.D. Greer goes on to claim that the long-term evangelistic effectiveness of a multicultural church will be greater than a ministry that is predominantly one race. He writes that a group of people who come together around Christ, when they have little else in common demonstrates God's salvation power. He goes on to joke about how a group of 25,000 white people gathering together to listen uh, to, to great music and an entertaining speaker isn't a demonstration of the power of God because it happens every week at a Justin Bieber concert. As a local church, we should strive for such diversity and pursue it so that we may be a proper representation of the kingdom of God. However, we have to understand that as we grow and as we become more diverse, there will be an increasing complexity in how the local church as an organization functions. And we must be prepared to adjust accordingly. In reality, as any organization or community grows and changes, it will create logistical problems. This is what we see in Acts 6. We read about a community of believers and how they're, they're growing. 
in verse 1. And then we're introduced to this group of people called the Hellenists that bring a complaint to the Hebrews that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, whenever we approach scripture, we have to always try and study what the passage meant in their context first before applying it to our context. Just a reminder that scripture, it was written by real people for real people in a context and in a culture that is radically different than ours. In our case this morning, as we read verse one, there's a couple of questions that we should answer out of the gate. The first one should be, who are these Hellenists? Who, are, who is this group of people called Hellenists? The Hellenists are a group of people who have Jewish ancestry, but they carry a linguistic distinction from your normal Jewish man or woman. This is what I mean by that. A typical Jewish man or woman, a Hebrew, would know how to speak primarily either Aramaic or Hebrew in some cases, and this would be their primary language. Uh, But they may also know how to speak Greek as as a secondary language. For the Hellenist, Greek was actually their primary and potentially their only language that they knew how to speak. So there was a language barrier here, and, 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 and it's estimated that Hellenists made up about 10 to 20% of the Jewish population in Jerusalem. The reason these Hellenists, uh, these Hellenist Jews, only speak Greek is because they most likely came from other countries outside of Israel. Throughout Israelite history, um, the Jewish people were often conquered and exiled. And what would happen is that there would be like a scattering of Jewish people into the world, a dispersion, if you will. A term that we often use to describe these people is that these Jewish people are the diaspora, right? They've been dispersed. Because of this, certain families through the generations would pick up and adapt to the cultural nuances of other nations, including, but not limited to, the language that they spoke. And so you have this group of Hellenists in Acts 6 who are of Jewish descent, who have converted to Christianity, but they come uh, or their family line comes from outside of Israel. They are not native to Israel. They are the minority. And so you can imagine due to the context that the differences between the Hellenists And the native Israelites isn't just a difference in what language they spoke, but this also produced uh, cultural differences and social differences. And so from this, we, we know that this first community of believers was a diverse group of believers. This early community is diverse, it's multicultural, it's a multi ethnic group. There was actually a study done by a man named David Fee that observed the composition of the Jerusalem church. And he concluded that nearly all levels of society were represented. He writes that this first church of thousands of believers within Jerusalem was uh, said to be a microcosm of the city. It represented all of the multicultural makeup of Jerusalem. 
And this is good because the church is called to look this way. However, our tendency seems to be to gravitate towards people that look like us, that talk like us, that sound like us. And when this happens, when we submit to such tendencies, we may submit to the sinful tendency of division. The group ends up, uh, that ends up suffering the most when this happens, when we gravitate to people that are like us, when it creates this, this rift, this division, the group that suffers the most is often the minority because there's strength in numbers. In Acts 6, we see shades of this as the Hellenists bring attention to the fact that specifically their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. And that should bring us to our second question about their culture and their context. We have, have to, in order to fully understand what's happening in their context, we have to ask the question, what is the daily distribution? What, what is this? If you read through the Old Testament and even through Jesus' teachings, you will find this common thread of caring for the poor come through the pages. It was a Jewish custom uh, to go to great lengths to provide for those who were underprivileged. Oftentimes in their culture, the measure of their compassion was determined by how it cared for the needy. And of all the people that were in need, the widows were typically some of the most vulnerable. Because women had very little opportunity and depended on their families for their economic stability and their social stability. And so when their husband passed away, they were suddenly way more in need than before. We recognize that this is still an imperative today. FAC has a ministry towards widows. We call it Anna's Sisters with the hope that we would support uh, these women that are in need. What we see in our text is that these Jewish to Christian converts desired to maintain this pattern of support for those in need. And so they had a system in place that they probably adopted from their Jewish heritage called the daily distribution or the daily ministry. It would be a ministry that would distribute necessary food and clothing and sometimes even money to those who were in need. And they did this every single day. This was quite an undertaking to care for that many people every day. And as the group of believers continued to grow, which we see in verse one they did, you can imagine the logistical nightmare of trying to accommodate everyone. What worked yesterday, in yesterday's context, in yesterday's size, isn't working today. And the Hellenists bring this to the apostles' attention. Now, I truly believe that this problem, in its purest sense, is a logistical problem due to the rapid growth of the community. I do not believe that the Hellenist widows were deliberately discriminated against. As you read the passage, it becomes clear that these particular widows were being neglected because of a lack of administrative structure. However, 
as the movement rapidly expands, they aren't prepared organizationally. And because of that, it's possible that the minority, the less prominent, have slipped through the cracks, which is still wrong. Perhaps in the frantic nature of the moment, those who were not cared for are the ones that don't have a voice or don't have influence. Think about it like this. This would be like if we opened our food pantry, right? And we weren't prepared for the mad rush of people. There were just so many people that it was overwhelming. And because of the nature of that, and because we weren't administratively prepared, uh, let's pretend that there was a group of people that only spoke Spanish, and they were neglected, not because we intended to neglect them, uh, but because they didn't have a voice to speak for themselves. They, they were just overlooked, which is still wrong. So you can see how serious this problem in Acts 6 could be become if not addressed. Think about it like this. Acts 6 verse 1 is a much different picture that we get than Acts 2.44. Acts 2.44 says that all who believed were together and all, uh, all, had all things in common. B- but in Acts 6.1, they aren't all together. There's a minority that's, for whatever reason, is being disconnected from the rest of the group. And they don't have all things in common because they're being neglected in the daily distribution. This is how church splits begin. This has a real potential to blow up because now there's division in the church. There's a little nick in the armor that the devil could use to to seep in and divide the church and drive a wedge in the church, drive that wedge of division. And what's worse, it's a division across ethnic lines. There's quite a severity to this issue. And it's a massive threat to their unity as a body of believers. This very well could compromise the harmony that they have in Christ. Thankfully, there was a voice for the voiceless among the Hellenists. And now a problem that probably started accidentally is exposed to the apostles. And the response of the apostles could either fix this issue or, depending on how they respond, could broaden the division. What probably didn't start as a racial issue could very well turn into that should any sinful or hidden prejudice bubble to the top in the hearts of the apostles. Unfortunately, when issues like this arise, leaders in their sinfulness will um, respond in one of three ways. Leaders may disagree with the situation or with with the problem. Perhaps leaders evaluate the circumstance and they find evidence that suggests that this actually isn't a problem at all. And while there may be some merit to this, it will typically leave the person who raises the complaint discontented. Or leaders could disregard the situation. Perhaps they recognize and agree that there's a problem, uh, but then they just kind of ignore it. They they sweep it under the rug because they're afraid to handle it themselves. They disregard it in hopes that the problem just fixes itself. They don't want to deal with it, so they ignore it outright. 
or worst of all, there have been leaders that disenfranchise. These are the type of people that you do not want in positions of leadership. These are the ones that purposefully marginalize and alienate those who experience the problem in an attempt to hold power and influence. Thankfully, the apostles did not respond in any of those ways. They heard the complaint. They decided that it was valid. They brought together a, a, a group of disciples, all the disciples, and, and, and brought them into the decision-making process, and they determined that something needed to be done about it. As they come to that decision, though, the apostles are faced with a dilemma of their own in verse 2. Right, the apostles could very well solve this problem on their own by picking up the slack in the situation. It would be very easy for the apostles to just step up and do it themselves. There are a lot of pastors that fall into this pitfall of just doing everything themselves. I used to be one of them. My thought process was if, if I can do it faster and I can do it better to my liking... I'm just going to do it myself. What's the harm in that? Just doing it all myself. I learned over time, however, that in not delegating tasks appropriately to others that were gifted and capable, I was in turn neglecting other responsibilities that I was called by God to do. If there's one thing that I regret in my early years of ministry is that I didn't delegate enough. A former mentor of mine once told me, Mike, when you say no to something, you are actually saying yes to something else. For the apostles, they recognized this problem, but they also recognized that it wasn't their problem to undertake. They said, yes, these widows are being neglected. And yes, we need to fix that. But it wouldn't be right for us to serve the tables, because if we serve the tables, then we would have to give up the ministry of preaching God's word and prayer. Basically, they're saying, we're going to say no so that we can say yes to something else. They're saying for us to personally fix this one wrong, if it has to be us, it would in turn cause another wrong to sprout up. If you want us to address this issue ourselves and serve the widows, one of two things is going to be neglected. Either the widows are going to be neglected or the ministry of God's word, preaching God's word and prayer is going to be neglected and neither should be so. The apostles are saying we have been called to preach by God specifically and it would not be right to give that up. It wouldn't be, another word, appropriate. The nuance here is that it wouldn't be pleasing to God for them to serve tables at the cost of preaching the word. And so what's the solution? How do we reconcile this issue? Through delegation. They call on seven men who are reputable, who are wise, who are full of the spirit and they make an organizational shift. 
They make an administrative change to accommodate the growing needs of their community. They adjust their procedures. They adjust their organizational structure. New problems sometimes require new structures to solve them. And we as a body of believers in our context must be willing to adjust to how we do things here. We cannot be chained to how we function because our community is going to change and has changed and we need to accommodate that. Structures are designed to serve an organization, to serve a community and they must change according to the needs. We as a community do not serve our structure. The structure serves us. The structure benefits us. And so I want us to know, you want the modern uh, application of this? This is what it is. As an FAC family, we have to know that in a church of our size, our staff cannot do it all, nor should they try. If we are to function in the biblical sense and meet the full needs of the community inside of these walls and outside of these walls, we need congregants to step up to the plate. Our effectiveness as a church depends on it. If we are to function in the biblical sense and live missional as a community of believers, the ministry must extend beyond the paid staff. I got one of those wonderful anonymous notes again recently. Um, If I talk about them enough, people might just start putting their names on them. Uh, This time, this was a more recent one. This was a couple weeks ago, and it was referencing our need for MOPS volunteers. And uh, it was a question. And the question on the note said, why can't our paid staff fill that role? And the word paid was in bold and it was underlined a a couple times. And I'll just be honest, it felt (laughs) mean-spirited towards me. And um, it was anonymous, so I couldn't answer it. Um, So I'm going to answer it right now. (laughs) The reason our paid staff can't fill that role is because of Acts 6, 1 through 7. Because it wouldn't be right for our staff to neglect other God-given responsibilities that they have been called to do. It's, it's that simple. And so it's our hope to delegate to someone who is capable and willing and, and to grant them the joy that comes with serving the Lord and grant them the joy that comes with being used to advance the kingdom. Because that's what it's really all about, isn't it? Advancing the kingdom. It would be very easy to read this passage and in your mind sort of set up this hierarchy of responsibility within the church. It'd be easy to read this and say, oh, the apostles are just offloading this very menial, physical, material task so that they can in turn go and do the real work of the gospel. 
It'd be easy in your mind to say they're offloading this so, so the real spiritual people could do the spiritual stuff and, and the normal, ordinary people can do these, these menial tasks so that the apostles can do the real work of advancing the kingdom. J.D. Greer once again writes in that book that there is a widespread myth that God only takes the spiritual elite and entrusts them with the ministry and everyone else's duty is to just show up. This is a myth. And Greer goes on to explain that such mindset absolutely cripples the mission that we're on. It is a myth. And we actually, as we read on to our passage, find that verse 7 completely debunks that notion. Because let me set the stage here for you. Once again, these seven men that were, were given this task, these are what you would call the, the ordinary believers, Right? If you buy into that myth, you would look at them and say, oh, they're not the spiritual elite. Five out of the seven, we never even hear about them uh, again. Right, And so these are just normal people. But in verse 7, we come and find that it says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tags this verse at the end of the passage because he's connecting a line between these seven ordinary men's service and the advancement of the kingdom. Luke is making the correlation between these men and their work and their service and more people coming to know Jesus. Once again, they're ordinary, but they're God-fearing. They're full of the spirit. They're full of wisdom. They're reputable. These are what you would say are not the professionals. Yet here they are, and they are raising their hands and saying, I will serve. And their actions directly led to gospel advancement. What this passage is suggesting is that because these men stood up, the gospel was able to advance. It suggests that if this action had not been taken by the apostles to delegate And if there was no one to pick up the slack in this social issue disturbing the church, the expansion of the word may not have continued. No, there is a direct correlation between making yourself available to serve where you're gifted and church growth. Those of you who sit here this morning and who are serving the body have a direct impact on the growth, both in size and maturity of the church. You play a mission critical role. And so I hope you see the significance in this. You have to understand how important these men actually are. And it proves to us that in the kingdom of God, there is no menial task. There is no such thing as secondhand work in ministry. All of it is gospel work. All of it is spiritual in nature because in the body of Christ, everything we do is done unto the Lord. There's no separation between the physical material work 
and spiritual work. Verse 7 ties those two concepts together. Material work done in the context of the local church is forever linked to spiritual work. Therefore, to do material work in such a context is to do spiritual work. It is to play a part of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And so all of our staff here at FAC are spiritual workers. Our maintenance staff who are tasked with maintaining the building, which is the most practical and material job that you could have in a local church. Our maintenance guys are spiritual workers. Our maintenance staff are doing gospel work. And if you need more convincing that the material work, physical work, is directly tied to spiritual work, let me direct your gaze to the cross. Let me direct your attention to the physical work of Jesus who physically died on a cross, who physically hung there, who physically was resurrected so that you may experience life spiritually. The greatest spiritual work in the history of man, the spiritual redemption of the world is only achieved through the physical sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What we do physically is way more attached to us spiritually than we give credit. What we are doing with our bodies is way more spiritual than we think. If you don't think your material tasks and your material world are spiritual in nature, then look to the cross. And while you're there, let me encourage you not to leave until you've submitted to Jesus so that you now may be used to proclaim such good news to the world through whatever task God has prepared you in advance to do. Let's pray. And Lord, we thank you for your word and we we thank you for for a passage that um, can be difficult to understand and difficult to apply, Lord, but but we thank you, Father, that, that Jesus went to the cross so that we would have life. We praise you, Father, that you care about the little things, that you care about the physical tasks at hand. And we would ask that, that, that we would be your hands and feet, Lord. And, and that as we go even to work tomorrow, Father, as we go about our places of business, as we go about our schools, I ask, Father, that you would bring uh, attention to our mind, the spiritual work that's being done in, the, in, the, in our physical work. Lord, would we have an attentive ear and an attentive eye to where you are working, Lord, and would we embrace the leading of your spirit? Would we not shy away from telling people in our workplaces about Jesus and bringing them uh, here to church to learn about who you are? 
We are thankful, Lord. We, we lift up our offering to you. Once again, Father, this is a physical act of worship. It's a denying of our own resources so that you may be glorified. And I would pray that you would bless our offering as, as we collect it and that it would be used to uh, make the name of Jesus known. We praise you, Father. Would you be with us as we go? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.